You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. This is a chair, okay? In case you didn't know. Um, King of the castle, I have a chair. Um, I want to use this as an illustration today, because if, if I don't get this illustration right and help you understand a very pivotal point of Hebrews, um, not just the sermon today, but, but really the rest of Hebrews isn't going to make great sense, okay? And so I want to begin the sermon today by talking about this chair. And the chair represents belief in Christ and his gospel message. When we use the word gospel, what it means is good news. It means that there is a good message that we have taken hold of, and it has brought us eternal life. Um, Now, what happens, what we're going to see in Hebrews is sometimes we take ownership of the chair. Okay, we'll, we'll maybe stand at the chair, maybe lean on the chair like this, but we're not resting in the chair. Our weight is not in the chair. It's ultimately on this floor up here. And, and what the Bible calls believing faith is sitting in the chair. And so at the point that all my weight is in the chair, now I'm resting in the gospel. And, and if we're not careful, we'll take ownership of a chair, and it was hard to get. I had to steal it from Lexi, okay? If we're not careful, we'll take ownership of the chair to mean that we're resting in the gospel when we've actually failed to sit down in it. The word the Bible uses for belief is pistuo, and it means to rest in or put weight in. And so when, when the Bible talks about us believing in the gospel, it means that we are pistuo, putting all of our weight in the gospel. That means if I make it to heaven, it is not because I've gone to church a lot or done all the right things. It is because I've put my full weight, my full soul in the gospel. I'm resting in it every day. I know that every day I'm dependent on the work of Jesus Christ, not my own work. But what Hebrews is going to warn us today, the passage we're going to look at is in Hebrews chapter 3, 7 through 19. And what this passage is going to warn us against is living a life where we just own the chair. We stand by the chair. We lean on the chair. And what that looks like is church attendance, sharing really religious stuff on Facebook, um, praying occasionally, reading our Bible occasionally, but never actually repenting and turning away from our sins. And, and the scary truth that, that the book of Hebrews brings to us is that, that every local church has people in it who are just standing by the gospel chair and not sitting in it. And I want to call you to examine yourselves today. Because especially in Appalachia, most of us came up in an environment where we know the gospel, we believe the gospel cognitively, we, we know it to be true. We know that Jesus lived and died on a cross and was buried and rose from the dead. But the Bible says that just knowing it to be true is not what belief is. You see, we lose it at that word belief. We think, okay, if I believe it, that just means I believe it to be true. But that's not what the biblical belief is. Do you rest in it? Do you trust in it? Do you wake up every day knowing that you, you fully rely on this gospel message? Okay? And, and last week, I wanted to spend more time on the idea of perseverance. Number one, I didn't have a chair. Um, I didn't want to get one in the middle of a sermon. Um, but I wanted to illustrate it that way. And I'm going to leave the chair there because I don't want to, y'all would have to awkwardly watch me take it back down to Lexi and it would just take a long time. 
But the other thing was, I, I wanted to really adequately set up what, what the author of Hebrews is showing us here. And so let me back up to verse 6 from last week. This is the verse I ended on last week that says, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if, scary word there, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And so we finished last week's sermon on this if business. What, what about this? Is our salvation conditional? Why does the book of Hebrews use that word if? Well, what I told you last week, I'll reiterate this week. There are two truths in Scripture that are simultaneously true. The first truth is that only those who persevere will be saved. And what, about, what I mean by persevere is stay in a relationship with God, with Christ. And when I say things like that, I know people are like, wait a minute, Will, you've taught us that we can't lose our salvation. You can't. If you've really got salvation, you can't lose it. But the Bible makes it clear that only those who persevere will be saved. Truth number two is this. All who have genuine faith are guaranteed to persevere. Because it is not our strength that keeps us in the chair. It's the strength of Christ. Now, if I'm honest, the fact that perseverance is necessary bothers me a little bit because I love grace so much. I preach grace all the time. I tell you all the time, you're a group of jacked up sinners. You're not perfect, and you shouldn't come to this church expecting this church to be perfect. We will make you mad and do everything we can to run you off because we're messed up. But here's what, like when, when, when people join our church and membership, they're not joining to just a bunch of jacked up sinners. They're joining to a bunch of people who've been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, what we preach to you is not ourselves. It's Jesus Christ and his perfection. That's who you hold on to. That's who you endure with. That's who keeps you running the race. And Scripture shows this throughout in lots of different places. Jesus taught it in Matthew 24, verse 13. He says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, the gospel is, is that by which you are being saved. And then he uses that word, if. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, and yet, unless you believed in vain. Back to the chair. Paul's saying, if you just stood by the chair, you may have heard the gospel and you may believe the gospel, but it might be in vain if you've never rested in the gospel. In the book of James, he tells us, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Isn't that scary? You can believe that Jesus rose from the dead and be dead in your trespasses and sins. Hebrews 3.14 says, We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. If we hold that confidence firm to the end. And so what I want to wrestle with is how in the world is this good news? Because I don't know about you, but I can't keep it together. I can't stay good. I mess up all the time. And the Bible tells me only those who persevere will be saved. But the good news is, is that all who have genuine faith are guaranteed to persevere. Let me share some other verses with you. Jude 24 says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. 1 John 4, 4 says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That means that the spirit of God that dwells within you is stronger than your flesh that wants to fall back into sin. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in the flesh. I live 
by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so this means that, that as we rest in the gospel, Christ makes sure we do. Isn't that good news, church? So that I can't boast in the fact that I rest in the gospel today. I can't boast in my own perseverance because ultimately it is Christ who is making sure I persevere. And I want to show you this in Hebrews chapter 3. I've got three points. We'll look at an example of rebellion, which comes from Psalm 95, which ultimately comes from Exodus uh, chapter 17, I think, somewhere in Exodus. Uh, We'll also look at how to avoid rebellion in our present lives. And then thirdly, we'll look at the result of rebellion if we do rebel, if we do walk away from the faith, what that actually means. And so let's look at this first point, an example of rebellion. Now listen, like like all examples, um, the the book of Hebrews gives us some, some metaphors, some analogies, some stories, some illustrations to kind of help us understand what's being written. Um, this is, listen, Jesus taught this way, right? He taught with illustrations. Remember, he talks about there's a speck of sawdust in your eye, but you've got a log sticking out of your face. Like, that's a kind of a humorous uh, illustration that he used. Um, Jesus taught in parables as well. This this use of stories is employed by the author of Hebrews, and it's effective. This is why y'all can't remember my excellent explanations of deep doctrines like substitutionary atonement and sovereign election and perseverance of the saints, but y'all be like, I remember when you sat down in that chair and talked about the chair, right? It, you know, illustrations or story, it, it, makes, it makes things kind of stick into our minds. And so a, a good illustration or a good story connects doctrine to to real life. It makes it palpable for us. And this is what the author of Hebrews does. He has basically a sermon illustration from the Old Testament. And the example is the children of Israel. If you you ever went to Sunday school and you know the story of the Israelites, they're taken into captivity. They're slaves in the nation of Egypt for uh, generations. They grow numerous, and God raises up Moses to deliver them out of Egyptian slavery. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years, uh, ultimately because they complain and they're whiny about God's grace upon them. He takes them out of Egypt, out of slavery, but then they walk in the desert and they don't like it. It's hot and they don't have enough food and they don't have any cheeseburgers and so forth and so on. You know the story. God gives them manna, God gives them quail, God provides for them, but they complain, they rebel against Moses, they lack faith. And ultimately, God tells an entire generation, you're going to wander for 40 years and and you're going to die in the wilderness and you're not going to enter the promised land. Instead, I'm going to give it to your offspring, your children. So God honors his promise, but the rebels of the wilderness do not get to go into the promise. Even Moses himself doesn't step foot in the promised land. And Hebrews uses this story as an example, and he, he quotes from actually Psalm 95, which was a song that they sang about the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. Let me start at Hebrews 3, 7. The word of God says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This was a church song. They sang this at church. Like, we need angry songs again at church. (laughs) Amen? We need to get angry again. Sing about wrath, all the fun stuff, a little more choppy guitar, you know, double bass drum. All right, I'll stop. So Psalm 95 that Hebrews is quoting from 
is, is not communicating that hundreds of thousands of Israelites went to hell because they complained in the desert. But it's using the analogy, using the story, the real thing that happened, and comparing the promised land, the physical promised land of Israel, to the, the spiritual promised land of heaven and eternal life. Contextually, what the Israelites did was not about eternal damnation in Psalms and Exodus, nor in Deuteronomy. However, in Hebrews, he's going to take this story and apply it in a way that makes it about eternal life and eternal damnation. The author of Hebrews is using the promised land as that metaphor. And because of rebellion and unbelief, this generation of Israelites that he's using as an example did not cross into that promised land. And the important word in this psalm that he quotes is in verse 7, today. Today, if you hear his voice, today do not harden your hearts. And the application that he's implying here is that Christianity is a day-by-day walk with God. Remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago, that, that when the Bible talks about us being saved, it actually says you are being saved. Salvation is always in the present tense. That doesn't mean that you're not saved yet or you're progressing to some kind of like, like diamond level pyramid scheme Christianity. What it means is that, that that process is ongoing and God is continuing to hold you in salvation. And so today, if you hear his voice, walk with God. That, means, that makes Christianity an everyday type faith, doesn't it? It's not just a flippant decision that you made at church camp one time or you walked an aisle at a revival camp meeting, but rather it is a day by day, each and every day, I trust in Jesus Christ for eternal life because of his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection that I have eternal life and I trust in that every day that I live. Well, what about the days that God seems silent and I don't hear his voice? Or what about the days that, that God seems far away? Or what about in the wake of tragedy where I don't understand what God is doing? Listen, the Psalms are filled with those types of days. There's 150 Psalms. There are more of them with agony and anger and sadness than there are with joy. The Psalms are filled with worshipers asking why God remains silent or neglects to come to his people. But there's a constant reminder that those feelings are just our feelings. They're not reality. God is not actually silent. God is not actually distant and far away from you. Look back at verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice. There's a great hope that the author of Hebrews inserts into this quote from Psalm 95. Your Bible probably has a quotation mark right before the word today, which indicates the beginning of quoting Psalm 95, which was written by David. But the beginning clause that's written by the author of Hebrews doesn't say, as David wrote. It would have been accurate to say that. But no, he says, as the Holy Spirit says. He doesn't just merely attribute it to a man writing a good song and a billboard chart-topping hit, but rather he says, this is God himself. This is the Holy Spirit speaking to us today. And notice he doesn't say, as the Holy Spirit once said hundreds of years ago, or thousands of years ago. No, he says, as the Holy Spirit says, present tense, which means that God is continuing to speak to us through his Holy Spirit and his Holy Word. You see, Hebrews is teaching you how to read your Bible. 
It is the inspired word of God. You want to hear the voice of God? If he feels distant, if he feels silent, you want to hear from him? Open his word. Read the Bible. And when you hear his word, do not harden your heart to him. Trust in what he tells you in scripture. And in that, you'll find your salvation. Now the application of this Old Testament story is point two, avoiding rebellion. So if I really believe in Jesus, and I do, then I don't have to worry about falling away, right? Well, not so fast. The Bible's full of exhortations of caution to not stray away from the faith. 2 Corinthians 13 gives one example where Paul writes to the Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. By the way, this is what we call every Christian in the room to do every Sunday before we take communion. Examine yourself. See if you're in the faith. I don't care how close to Jesus you've seemed to walk every Sunday. We call you to the same thing. Examine yourselves. That verse continues. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? The next verse in our passage today, Hebrews 3, is a self-test verse. In verse 12, the author of Hebrews says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Now, an evil, unbelieving heart... Almost all of us are going to read that and be like, well, that's not me. But I think who Hebrews is talking to are the people that are right here. This is my chair. I own it. It's mine. I believe it. I like it. But the Word of God says you can be right here and have an evil, unbelieving heart that is straight headed to damnation, refusing to rest in the gospel of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, you need to examine your hearts you can, again, you can cognitively believe in the reality of God's existence and Jesus' passion and resurrection, but re- rebelliously refuse to submit to him. You go to church because you, you might know it to be true, yet you do not submit your life to Christ truly because you want to be your own God and do what you want. You don't submit yourself to him outside of these four walls. There are many who will check the box Christian on their U.S. census that are not at all committed to Christ. The reality is that many people who call themselves Christians will devote way more time and energy and resources to sporting events or hobbies rather than their Savior who died for them. Amen, Will. There are a lot of people who call themselves Christians who will give way more money this year to Netflix than they will to the ministry of Christ. Amen, Will. I'll do it. I know I'm preaching now. The reality is, is that Jesus says, by our fruits, people will know who we serve. By our treasure, we'll see where our hearts are. Verse 12 warns us to take care, lest this be a sign of an evil and unbelieving heart. And then verse 13 gives us some responsibility toward one another. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Man, I love this verse. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Exhort one another. That means that we, we get in each other's faces sometimes and say, you need to knock off that knucklehead of business you've been doing and you need to serve Jesus. 
Or we, sometimes we say, you need to make sure you don't start that knucklehead business. This verse shows us the need for community in the church. The reality that Hebrews shows us here and in subsequent chapters that we'll get to is that Christians are in the church, not outside of it. A lot of people are like, well, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. You do to be a good one. That's just what the Bible says. There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian in Scripture. It don't have to be this church. I promise you, you can find better churches than this one. I know y'all, okay? I know myself, too. But we need encouragement to carry on. We need to exhort one another. We need to live in accountability and community. That means that we ought to affirm and encourage one another in the faith. Some of y'all, like Snoop Dogg does this better than you. You've heard his affirmations? There's no one better to be than myself. Y'all don't know Snoop Dogg. It's, you're good Christians. I know I'm not. That's his clean stuff, by the way. But those of you that are just like negative all the time, check yourself on this. You should not be just mad all the time, negative all the time. You ought to exhort and encourage all the time. In the body of Christ, we positively spur one another on to good works, not arguments, not deceit, not division. And we do it, when do we do it? The verse tells us, as long as it's called today. You know what that means? All the time. It's always called today. Did you know that? Like anytime we have a conversation, it's happening today. One of my kids, I don't, I've already forgotten which one, but one of my kids used to use the phrase, the day after yesterday. You mean today? <laughs> the day after yesterday. Can we do that the day after yesterday? Like that's a sneaky way of saying you want to do something fun right now. Okay. The day after yesterday. How many of y'all are procrastinators? Show of hands. I always like the, the people that are slow to put their hand up. You procrastinate admitting that you're a procrastinator. It's always my favorite. Okay. I'm right there with you. I love procrastination. It's one of my favorite things. There we go. I love it. I work better under pressure. That's what I tell my wife. I'm just waiting until the pressure kicks in, then I can get it done. <laughs> but there's no space for that here. You can't, there is no tomorrow in the Christian life. There's today. We don't put off gospel opportunities, gospel conversations, sharing the hope of Jesus, discipleship. We don't put it off to tomorrow when we've been gifted today. Today. As, it is, as long as it is called today, we exhort one another and we make sure that none of us fall back into the sin that we've been freed from. Verse 14. It says, we have come to share in Christ. Here's that word again. If. We've come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Man, this is a scary verse, ain't it? Scary. We share in Christ if we keep it up to the end. You see, the reality is most Christians have a very decision-centered view of salvation. Now listen, a moment of conversion when you decide to be a Christian is biblical. I'm not saying it's not. A decision to follow Christ at a moment in time in your life is biblical, I promise. But since, since we've begun New Heights, here's what I've noticed. I've, I've known a lot of you, this is your testimony. I've been coming to this church for six months, and when I started coming to this church, I thought I followed Jesus, and now six months later, I realized I didn't. I wasn't following him, but I know I am now. And when that change happened in six months, I don't know, but I know I'm, I know I'm saved now. 
Most of us have a very decision-centered orientation of Christianity, though. You see, if it's only that, though, if our version of what it means to be a Christian is only making a, a, one decision at some point in your life, that's not biblical Christianity. It doesn't line up with Scripture. A lot, the, the way this plays out practically in our church is a lot of people ask, why don't y'all do an altar call? I just say, because the floors hurt our knees. That's, that's what I say. We don't have carpet because we like to drink coffee during church. What do you want us to do, an altar call? Um, I'm being facetious. But a lot of people do ask us that. Well, how are people supposed to get saved if there's nowhere to like, come kneel down up front? Well, first of all, like, the Bible's very clear. You can pray anywhere. So if you want to say the sinner's prayer and repent of your sin, you, you, don't, you better not wait until the end of the sermon. You better start praying right now where you're at. Okay? Or this week, or where, wherever the Lord calls you to repentance. But the reality is, I think, I think the call for Christians to examine themselves week after week and step to the Lord's table, represented by his uh, body and blood and bread and juice, week after week, is a much more biblical altar call. It's what the Bible tells us to do over and over and over again. And if you haven't yet come into a relationship with Jesus, you just hang back during that time. And you look at the hope that all of us have, and you examine, what are you missing? What's lacking in your life? And let's get that fixed. Let's get that taken care of. Baptism that we hope to do today, but the dang cold kept us out of it. Maybe the Lord in his, his sovereignty didn't want us baptizing today to bring attention to baptism for you so that you could realize, I've been, I've been pretending to be a Christian for a long time. I need to make a real commitment to Jesus and be baptized in two weeks when we finally got some warm water. Here's what I noticed when we first started our church. We did altar calls, and we did like, um, y'all been in church where it's like, every head bowed, every eye closed, and the guitar player's over here like, just looking at everybody. <laughs> it happened all the time. Raise your hand if you want to accept Jesus. First of all, why would you need to be ashamed of accepting Jesus? I don't know. But every head bowed, we used to do that. And what I, what I began to notice was we always had, like month to month, year to year, we had about twice as many people say they came to Christ as we did baptisms. The Bible says you come to Christ, the first step of obedience is to be baptized. Well, so many people are like, yeah, I want to follow Jesus. I don't want people to know about it, though. You want to put me in front of people? I'm just saying, is there a sincerity there? I, th I think we've grown to say, we'll stick with the, the metrics and the traditions that the Bible gives us, and the other ones we can hold with an open hand. Not saying they're bad or wrong but they'll be open-handed to us. Listen to what John Piper says about decision-based Christianity. I love this. I thought this was super helpful. He says, there is a brand of Christianity abroad in this country that says once you've made a decision, you go to heaven no matter what you do. And it's demonic. Decisions are real to the degree that they beget perseverance. To the degree that they don't, they're false. Isn't that helpful? I thought that was so good. And what it, what it tells us, and I agree with this, is that the sincerity of your decision to follow Christ is not seen at the moment of conversion. It's seen at the final judgment. And I know that's scary, but listen, it should be. It should terrify us and make us in awe of our God. What has he called me into? He's called me into a lifelong commitment and that's a good thing. It's a great thing. 
It's not how many tears I cried at the altar call. I got saved at 10 years old, walked an aisle, knelt at the cross. I had to get in the middle of the altar. I came from a different place. I was like, I want to be at that cross, at the altar. I was right there, kneeled at the cross, because we sang about that. Kneel at the cross and all that stuff. And so I knelt and I wept as a 10-year-old boy. But it's not how many tears I cried at the altar call. It's when I finished the race. And God says to me, well done, good and faithful servant. And, and, I, and I can take my crown off and cast it at Jesus' feet because I can acknowledge I would never have kept the faith if it weren't for Christ. You know, the Bible uses the analogy of a wedding a lot, a marriage. Now think about this. Every wedding starts off beautifully, doesn't it? Well, some of them are a little sketchy. But, <laughs> but most of them start off really nice, right? Like no one goes to their wedding vows and they make promises to their spouse and they're like, Hopefully, you know, like, they're like, no, baby, till death do we part. I'm in this. But if they abandon their spouse and walk away from it, they reveal that they they weren't really true in their commitment. The sincerity of a husband or wife is not seen at the wedding day. It's seen at the hospice house as they hold the hand of their loved one and say, my vow is just as true today as it was the first day. This is what the gospel is, is that we make it to the end, not by our goodness, but by Jesus' grace. And we're just as much in love with him as we were on the first day. And we're walking in a deeper way even than on the first day. And we acknowledge that Christ holds those who have been sincere in our conversion, and then we persevere. Verse 15 says, as it is said, again, he quotes it, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Again, this metaphor for us is a warning to make sure that we're really in the faith. Some of y'all need to wrestle with that. Let me finish. Last point, the result of rebellion. The warning that we're given is not to be a pretender in the church. Romans 9 tells us, it's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who were descended from Israel belong to Israel. This is a longer context, but what the point that Paul's making here is that just because they were in the family of God, in proximity to Israel, did not make them saved. There were people who were ethnically Jewish that went to hell. So, so in, in the Appalachian context, I hear this this way a lot. Well, my papa was a preacher, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, I go to church. Um, well, those things are not the test of salvation. Israelites could have said, yeah, I walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. I saw a pillar of fire and a cloud that rested over us. I ate bread from heaven. But Paul makes the case that many of them were not truly a part of God's family. And if your heart is rebellious, you need to know the result of your rebellion. You can fool the church, but you'll never fool Christ. And this passage, this chapter ends, verses 16 through 19, with this warning. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all of those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Now again, remember the application that the author of Hebrews is going after. He's applying this to eternal life and eternal damnation. And the application that he is illustrating to us with his grand sermon illustration from 
the people of Israel, is that there will be people in very close proximity to the church, maybe even members of the church, who are eternally damned because they were never truly repentant of their sin. They owned the chair, but they never sat down in the chair. I want you to notice a few things out of this last section. Number one, look at God's patience with the rebels. I'm not 40 years old yet. 40 years. That's longer than my lifetime so far. God puts up with their madness for 40 years and gives, gives them all the time in the world. Patience, long-suffering, grace. Second thing I want you to see is that the rebels receive God's wrath. They die in the wilderness, east of the Jordan. Now, I don't think this passage is saying they all go to hell. This is the analogy, but they, they don't enter into the promised land. And the third thing I want you to observe, and I want you to observe this really closely as we conclude today, Sometimes rebels convince themselves that they're not rebels because they don't examine themselves. Oh, yeah, okay, it's time for communion. I better stop checking my fantasy football and tune in here. Oh, okay, yeah, time to, time to do that. There's no examination. There's an assumption, rather, that you're good, that everything's gravy. Let me leave you with the words of Jesus out of Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, do I read that to scare you? You bet. I hope it scares the hell out of you quite literally to a point that you pledge your allegiance day after day after day to your sinless Savior who is nailed to a cross on your behalf, who takes away all fear, who can reassure you every day that you don't have to be afraid of passing into utter darkness because he has paid the price for you. And so the examination, how do you do that? Back to the chair. Right now, I don't care about your decision. I don't care about your church membership status here or at any other church. Do you rest in the gospel today? How you get into heaven? Do you trust and put your full weight in the work of Jesus rather than your own? We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.